Hi, and welcome to the Engineered Mind podcast, a podcast about engineering, AI, neuroscience, and other interesting topics of life to educate and inspire people all around the world. I'm your host, Joseph, and in today's podcast, I welcome Chris Madman. Chris is the Deputy Chief Technology and Innovation Officer in the Office of the Chief Information Officer at NASA JPL. At JPL, Madman manages the Advanced IT Research and Open Source and Technology Evaluation and User Infusion Offices. Madman is JPL's first principal scientist in the area of data science. He has over 19 years of experience at JPL and has conceived, realized and delivered the architecture for the next generation of reusable science data processing systems for NASA's Orbiting Carbon Observatory. He contributes to open source as a former director at the Apache Software Foundation, where he was one of the initial contributors to Apache Nudge as a member of its project management committee, the predecessor of Apache Hadoop. Madman is the progenitor of the Apache Ticker framework, the digital bubble fish, and de facto content analysis and detection framework that exists. Madman is the director of the Information Retrieval and Data Science Group at USC and adjunct associate professor. He teaches graduate courses in content detection and analysis and in search engines as well as information retrieval. Madman has materially contributed to understanding of the deep web and dark web through the DARPA MEMEX project. Also, Madman's work helped uncover the Panama paper scandal. And now, ladies and gentlemen, here's my conversation with Chris Madman. So, Chris, welcome to my podcast. It's a pleasure to have you here. What we'll start with is maybe you introduce yourself to the audience first. Absolutely. Thanks for having me so much. Uh, I, I'm Chris Matman. Um, I have uh, a number of different uh, roles, but maybe primarily I'm the Deputy Chief Technology Officer at NASA JPL. I've worked, uh, and that's JPL, not JBL, like the head, headphones. Uh, we make rock, you know, we do space exploration at JPL, Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Uh, I lead the technology and innovation team there. I've been there for about 20 years. I'm a professor of computer science at the University of Southern California. Um, I've contributed a lot to open source, which I, I bet we'll get into. And um, I'm currently writing a book called Machine Learning with TensorFlow, second edition with Manning right now. So I'm into AI, data science, machine learning, all those things. So it's a pleasure to be here. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much. Uh, what did you, oh, how did you get into AI? Let's, let's, let's ask it like that. Yeah, well, you know, that's hopefully not you know, too long a story. I don't want to you know, take up forever, but uh, basically... Um, I got, I'm kind of, so I have a PhD in computer science. I was trained in software design um, and, and data. And my, uh, my work before was in the design of sort of large scale information systems and things like that. So I'm kind of like statistics and information retrieval. Over the last um, three to five years, a lot of the folks on my team have been, you know, really into AI and machine learning. And in particular for me over the last couple years, um, I've kind of gotten more into it and I wanted to know what are they talking about? You know, that, that's what led me to a couple years ago, picking up a book, the first edition of the book that I'm writing the second edition for now called machine learning with TensorFlow and to start playing around with TensorFlow and, and figuring out about it. So it's been about a couple years and, uh, you know, from just sort of starting seeing how, you know, training data matters, how setting up, you know, experiments matters, how data augmentation matters, how, you know, you don't only have to jump to deep learning and you can, you know, use traditional statistical models. Just kind of that whole journey has been really amazing for me over the past couple of years and just the broad applicability of it. It's no longer kind of a niche thing that 
people worked on in theory, computing has sort of caught up and so has framework support for AI nowadays. And so it's made it a lot more practical and you know tenable, at least, for people to consume. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Before we jump to the framework subject, I want to ask you, um, is it really increasingly becoming more difficult and more important to do machine learning for big data? Because we have a massive amount of data, as you probably know, for sure. I think it's, I think for me, you know, the struggle with AI and machine learning, um, and I've, I've, you know, had it in my own team and experienced it firsthand myself is the lack of sort of structured training data. There's not a lack of big data out there. Like, like you talked about, you know, it's just, how do we turn that into, you know, labeled, labeled data that can actually not be garbage, you know, to train machine learning on. And, There have been $100 million investments, many government programs in many nations, and in particular, I can you know, name a couple. The whole, one of the whole points of, say, like the DARPA Memex program, uh, which went from 2014 to 2017, $100 million program, basically built the next generation of search engines and, and helped out law enforcement, helped stop human trafficking, you know, weapons and, and gun enforcement, illegal weapons. But one of the big points of that program was to look at the unstructured, deep, and dark web and learn how to turn it into structured information. And one of the you know, keys to doing that, or, you know, taking unstructured data or recognizing there's sort of a dearth of big data out there, is how do you put it in a format, you know, not just that you can search and find and discover, but nowadays that you can make decisions on or automate or use machine learning on and things like that. And, and so there's a lot of efforts sort of that have spawned after that, you know, some of the auto ML work, which we can get into, But also, there's some exciting things in machine learning, you know, from that as well, called like zero-shot learning or learning with less labels, which is how do we just use the data that's out there, turn it into a format, or use generative networks to like think up new data that's believable and do machine learning that way. So those are some of the things that are interesting me. I do believe that, uh, you know, I do believe that we have to use the big data that's out there, but it's not usable typically in its existing form, and you have to transform it. Mm, it's good that you say that. If someone wants to go the same way or the same path uh, that you, so so to speak, went, um, it's a sad story, but also necessary to tell that uh, a big part of the work is basically data pre-processing, as you mentioned. Absolutely, and uh, and people don't get that, uh, you know, to start all the time. Uh, you know, they think, oh, I'm just going to jump into doing sentiment analysis or, yeah, let's go and start doing clustering and, and all of this. And then it's, it's exactly like you said. It's, oh, did you know that you're going to spend the first, I don't know, 100 lines of your notebook and, and everything preparing the data and doing pre-processing? And, and, you know, that can turn people away sometimes. I've actually seen, say, scientists. You know, it's so funny. I joke about, say, computer scientists or engineers or things that call us little s scientists, little s It's not big S because it's been kind of worn, you know, it's been sort of melted into my brain that uh, the real scientists, you know, as we talked to at NASA and other places, are Earth scientists or planetary scientists or geologists. And, you know, just what we're doing, you know, with computers, that's little S science and, and things like that. And so that's kind of the running joke. But for me, what I've actually found is... If you think about data science, it's so cross-disciplinary and things like that. What you find is that those kind of classically trained experimental Earth planetary scientists, they don't have a problem with data preparation because half of the work they do out in the field or collecting samples or whatever is all that. You know, they, they know that 
the 20% of their time that they're actually running the scientific method, doing a new experimental process or whatever, only happens after you've collected the dinosaur bones, you know, cleaned them, you know, recorded data in a spreadsheet. So they, you know, they know that. They get that part. It's, it's usually the computer scientists funny enough, that are put off by all the cleaning work that you have to do. So mm-hmm. I don't know if you've, you've noticed that on your end, but that's, you know, what I notice a lot. Yeah, I noticed this as well. Uh, I've also seen that you uh, teach subjects uh, at Caltech. Now, let's say someone comes and wants to learn from you, in particular your book, and with the plethora of courses out there, teaching data science, machine learning, deep learning, and so on, uh, What path would you advise people should take in order to get started with machine learning and doing really the dirty work of data pre-processing? Is it covered in your book? Um, absolutely. Yeah, it's absolutely covered in my book. And, um, and so, I, so I do teach. I teach at USC, uh, the University of Southern California. And um, although I, I'm also employed by JPL and funny enough, I'm a Caltech employee. So you're absolutely right. I just, um, I, do, I do the teaching at SC. I, I, um, I did teach a a Coursera course at Caltech on, on big data at one point. Um, so, so to your question and to your point, um, one of the things that I'm doing in the second edition of the book is in the first edition, it would kind of like throw out, it was, it was great. I, you know, the, the first author, um, uh, the first edition author of the book was amazing. He was a UCLA computer vision, uh, PhD machine learning student. He's running a startup now. He's the CTO there and he's real busy. His name is Nishant. Real excellent. Actually, the way he taught really got me on to machine learning and everything else. One of the things that he would do is teach a concept, though, and then he would throw, like, he would teach a concept like convolutional neural networks. And then he'd throw out at the end in a bullet at the end of the chapter, like, oh, now, yeah, now that I've taught you about these, why don't you think about making a facial identification CNN? Why don't you, like, look at the VGG face or, you know, one of these other things and, and see if you can recreate it? And so, you know, six to eight to 12 weeks later, as I went down that journey, you know, of trying to do some of those things and realizing, holy crap, this is hard. <laughs> you know, these are graduate level assignments. Um, what I ended up with after going through the first book over a year and a half was a set of Jupyter notebooks teaching data pre-processing steps, notes and everything. And that's really the second book. The second book is a whole bunch of new chapters that fill in the gaps that show you with Jupyter Notebooks, that show you with real examples, real data, and things like that, basically how you, how you fill in the gaps and how you do machine learning uh, in real life, you know, with, with TensorFlow and things like that. And so, so my recommendation, you know, so that's part of, your, your quite, part of the answer to the question. The other part of the answer is, you know, you talk about how do people get started in this with the plethora of classes that are out there and things. There's tons of classes. Uh, one of the things I can say is, you know, you have the option of learning really quickly and using what I would call oft-used data sets in the machine learning community. You know, you take, say, image recognition, MNIST, right? A set of digits, zero to, you know, nine, and, you know, in different uh, orientations and, and grayscale and, and, and different, you know, coloring and, and things like that. And MNIST is a very classical data set. Um, what you find, I think, is that you have a bunch of classes that start with those examples, but you don't have a ton of classes or examples that, you know, in the real world are what you're going to be dealing with as a data scientist or a machine learning person. MNIST is great, but, you know, that's sort of hour four in your job once you become a data scientist. And after hour four, your boss gives you a, a real data set. They say, go pull down Twitter, 
stock prices, health data, and go solve COVID, you know, or go look at, you know, things like that. And what, and so what I found, you know, a lot of the work that I do and that I teach and things like that are non-standard, very interesting data sets, just because I've been involved in so many projects over 20 years where we've collected these, even before I got into AI and machine learning and things like that, I was helping to collect and prepare data that others could reuse and do real world kind of work with. And so my classes, a lot of the stuff I do at USC, you know, we've done polar data sets, we've done weapons and guns data sets, we've done, um, you know, data sets related to semantic forensics, forensics for scientific literature to see if people faked the images that they're doing. So, you know, deep fakes. And so whatever sort of topical, we've done UFO sightings, you know, whatever's topical and interesting, and in my opinion, multimodal, it's not just one media format, it's not just text, it's not just images, but maybe it's both. Those are real examples that you have to solve nowadays and that will prepare you for an actual career in this field. Mm, great advice. Great advice. Thanks a lot. Um, what would you say, if, how, or how do you keep yourself up to date with the, you know, the technological advancements and every day there's plenty of papers coming out? How do you deal with that? Yeah, yeah, that's hard. Um, you know, I would say, I'm going to answer this in two parts. I have a set of people that work for me that are constantly chasing technology. And you got to have people that do that or papers or the new thing. Um, and you got to have some of that, but that can't be the only thing you do. I like to joke with people, you know, uh, you know, you talk about a, a weapon or a gun or something like that. It's like, I, I can have, I can be the guy that owns 20 guns and doesn't know how to shoot any of them very well. Or I could be the guy that owns, you know, one gun and knows it really well, you know, and as is very effective with it. Um, and so sometimes I see, especially in our field in AI and machine learning, people taking that analogy of, well, I just have to learn everything. And what you find at the end of the day is that you don't know any one thing very well, you know, because of that. So for me, um, you know, I, I definitely read papers. What I do is I collect papers. So I'll follow archive, I'll follow what people are doing. I'll be like, oh, this is interesting. Oh, AutoML. Oh, model to learn another model. Oh, this or that. And I'll save them. And then what happens is six to nine months later, I've got like 15 papers I want to read and then I'll read them, you know. Um, but in my day to day life, you know, that's why I kind of joke with people sometimes. So all my, uh, you know, people that work for me, they've, you know, they, they are like, oh, you're writing a book on TensorFlow and, you know, oh, that's, that's old. We've moved on to Karat or no, we've moved on to, uh, oh, God, what is it? Um, PyTorch or, you know, Fast AI or things like that, yeah. you know, and and I'm like, cool, what I'm going to do is I'm going to learn the very solid thing I think that's been released and that has its own properties and I'm going to learn it really well. And so that's what I did with TensorFlow, you know, for me. And I don't really get into the debates about, you know, the differences between it and PyTorch, although I, I have some opinions and I'll be happy to share them with you um, from what I know. And uh, but for me, I know it really well. And, uh, you know, and so that's that's what happens with me is that I you know, I practice it. So, so with respect to technology development, I don't get a chance to do as much as say 10 years ago when I was actively kind of architecting and leading some of these open source projects. Now I do a lot of technical management, but I, I still save about 15 to 20% time to just do projects, have one thing, you know, that I'm good at. And so TensorFlow was that for me. Um, you know, I have a number of real world notebooks and examples and things that I can apply every day. And then um, I look for like one interesting challenge or project maybe every few months to just apply it to, 
you know, and now I'm working a lot on COVID text mining, you know, mm-hmm. with TensorFlow and things like that, um, because that's sort of very interesting to me. And I think the work that, you know, we're, we're trying to do as part of this Kaggle challenge and White House challenge to mine scientific publications to try and look for disease transmission, um, you know, medications, procedures and things related to, you know, COVID. I think the work that we're doing after that, I could turn into a bunch of assignments, you know, in a year or two that would still be very relevant to people and I could use to teach that. So, so that's how I, I do it. Those the multi-pronged approach. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Um, now you talked about the differences between TensorFlow and PyTorch, and I actually wanted to ask you this. Can you maybe briefly, in, in crisp, maybe two or three sentences, if it's possible, to outline what made you choose TensorFlow and write the book like Machine Learning and TensorFlow instead of Machine Learning and PyTorch? <laughs> yeah, so really quick. Um, to me, TensorFlow um, doesn't hide the dirty part of AI and machine learning, um, you know, in an elegant API. Um, although TensorFlow has, especially TensorFlow 2 has Keras and other elegant, you know, you know, construction utilities to it for building neural networks and doing deep learning and things like that, TensorFlow doesn't hide the underlying matrix multiplication. In fact, in some ways, you know, if you learn it that way, it puts it front and center. And I see a lot of AI and machine learning people kind of turned off by that. They want layer construction and they just want to, you know, set their, you know, do their hyperparameter tuning and a couple of attributes and whatever. And that's very powerful. And you can get started very quickly that way in AI and machine learning. But what it does is it hides, it's like the people that, you know, own the great car, but they don't know how to uh, change the oil in it or, you know, they don't know how to change the tire. I'd rather know how to change the tire, you know, and I'd rather not have that hidden from me. And so that was very attractive to TensorFlow. Um, for me. And then, and then later on, if you want to get elegant and you want to use elegant APIs, they're there for you. It's just not the first thing that you learn, um, you know, per se. And it's not the first thing that Google puts out for you to learn. They kind of, and so that, you know, that's sort of the benefit and trade-off. If you want to, maybe you're more productive in your first six hours with PyTorch than you are with TensorFlow, but maybe, you know, at that 18 hour mark, at that week mark, at that three month mark, if you really learn TensorFlow, uh, I think it's it's something that can be you know just as much if not more powerful. Mm-hmm. Would you say that if someone gets started in machine learning or is a bit advanced, should we learn like the as a beginner Python or would you recommend something else besides Python? It's moved to Python. I, I'm a Java guy. I helped invent Hadoop. Uh, you know, I was involved at, at Apache on the board of all the major you know big data projects from Kafka to Cassandra to everything you know that have come out recently. And I'm speaking as a Java person. Uh, it's Python, baby. It's it's Python. It's moved to Python. You really now. The funny part is the back end of some of these things. Unless you're, you know, I mean, and it's really Python and C and C plus plus to make it fa- fast at that point. Um, but there's still a lot of Java use. Funny enough, in AI and machine learning on the back end, elegant Python front end APIs for data science and whatever. But then you know, pushing off to Kafka or Storm or you know some of these other things. I've seen a lot of integration. Uh, you know, on the back end still with Java and, you know, like servers. And actually there was funny, I don't know if you saw recently, there was a resurgence of COBOL, you know, uh, funny enough, and it had to do with COVID and the health system and whatever. There, you know, still a market apparently for COBOL programmers. So, you know, if there are COBOL programmers in the market, you know, Java people still have plenty of life in them on the back end. But as for data science, teaching people the fastest thing to learn, where everything is, I mean, 
you'll never replace. I know, I know Travis Oliphant who wrote, you know, NumPy. He was, you know, he started Continuum Analytics, which is now called Anaconda. He and I used to work together on some DARPA programs. Peter Wang, these types of people. You just, there's no analogy for the elegance and beauty and real power of things like NumPy, you know, numerical Python, which is at the core of all AI and machine learning nowadays. It's matrix, multiplication, linear algebra, you know, uh, calculus, differential, all the math there, you really need an expressive, powerful library to kind of handle that. And that's what NumPy is. And so it's, it's Python. And then everything else is built off of that. Tensors, you know, dealing with it. So, yeah. Mm. So to all the guys listening now, you heard it now from Chris Madman, Python is the way to go. What, uh, what makes your book different, um, like among all the other books that teach mach uh, machine learning? In particular with TensorFlow, what would you say? What sets you apart from other machine learning books? To me, the thing that sets, sets apart is that thing I was, you know, you and I were just talking about with respect to real data sets and also putting a focus on um, preparation, you know, as well. Not shying away from the AI and machine learning part, but basically just taking the time, you know, instead of just saying, oh, download this uh, pickle file, you know, unpickle it or you know, download, you know, this uh, TensorFlow data set, which everything's hidden, you know, it's already been prepared. No, like, I actually take you through how do you prepare the data sets? You know, um, the, the other sort of thing I would say that separates it is, you know, in some books on AI and machine learning I've seen, there's not a real kind of indication about how to scale it up, um, you know, or they just, it's really hidden from you, you know, it'll, it'll talk about things like Kaggle, You know, but it hides the fact that behind the scenes, it's you, you know, you click train and you're waiting, you know, for basically 12 hours or 50 hours after that point. So I tackle those things firsthand. Um, and then and then finally, I'd say the other major differentiator is for me, I've run data science teams, you know, for the last 10 to 15 years, you know, after becoming an individual contributor and principal in that area myself and helping to define it, uh, you know, as a discipline. And I know the types of challenges that I give data science teams nowadays because it's the same that senior management and leaders in the world are giving me. And so that I, I kick that down in the book, you know, um, from everything from basically how do you use machine learning to help you run a more efficient call center to how do you do, you know, multimodal sentiment analysis to, you know, how do you rebuild a facial identification model that it really is the de facto used one nowadays VGG face, you know, that Google just deployed a version of for celebrity identification to, to everything. How do you, to doing deep speech and automated speech recognition. So really multimodal, real world challenges and problems, not shying away from the data, how you built it, and then showing the parts of TensorFlow, I think, both the ugly parts and the elegant parts for how you solve the problem. Mm -hmm. That's very great. And also to put in a very bad joke now, I also saw in your book that you also have a Netflix um, data set, which you do sentiment classification on. So if anybody's into Netflix and chill and wants to uh, apply his TensorFlow skills, uh, please uh, get Chris's book. And we will put every link down in the description of the podcast so you also get some discount on Chris's book. You talked a little bit about your open source projects. Do you want to say anything about that, like where you worked at Apache and and so on? Uh, sure. Um, so it kind of ties back. When I was in school, maybe like five years into working at JPL, I was still in school um, at USC. And I took a class on search engines. And at the time, there was Google. 
and and uh, Microsoft, you know, the early parts of Bing and AltaVista and things like that. And there was a real concern that Google, <clears throat> you know, as a they were great. They were publishing, uh, you know, the work that they were doing on MapReduce and um, the Google file system and things like that. But Google as a company, you know, there was a real concern. There were black box search APIs and ranking algorithm APIs in there. And people, it was becoming more and more used by the community and, and really the world to the point of where it became part of our lexicon in day-to-day lives. And people like Doug Cutting, um, you know, who was a former linguist from Stanford, worked at Excite, Bell Labs, and the inventor of Lucene, the search engine toolkit, uh, indexing toolkit at the time, started a project called Nutch, which was a effort to make search democratized. So you could see inside the algorithms, play around with it and stuff like that. So my final project in my PhD level search engines class, I was taking, the professor just went all in and said, hey, I want you guys to contribute to open source, get involved in this Nutch project. And it was just getting started at Apache at the time. Doug had moved it from a nonprofit foundation to Apache. So my final project in my USC search engines class was contributing a parser for the really simple syndication RSS format. And in doing that, I learned about open source. I learned about, you know, basically old school message boards and where kind of old school software veterans, you know, yelled at you for, you know, formatting your code greater than 80 lines or, you know, things like that you don't get typically when you're working with a bunch of, you know, at the time for me, rocket scientists and scientists. Like I didn't get the software part, although I had been studying software um, you know, Barry Bame of, you know, software engineering economics fame was on my committee, you know, and things. So I had a lot, Nino Medvedevich, who invented the C2 architecture style, you know, Roy Fielding, who invented REST, you know, these were all people that I were in my sort of circles, academic circles at the time. Um, so I had a lot of software, but I wasn't practicing it. So the open source, you know, getting involved in that was a way to sort of hone the software craft and learn. So I got, I got more and more involved. I have a lot of academic connections to people at Apache, like Justin Ehrenkrantz, who was the president of Apache at the time, was like my academic cousin. His advisor's advisor, Dick Taylor, was my advisor, Nino Medvedevich's advisor at Irvine. So there was a, an Irvine-USC connection there. Justin was telling me to get more involved. I got more involved. And so, yeah, I, I basically joined. I became a committer on Nutch. Um, I became a project management committee member. And then... I was there and more interested in working on, I would say, file formats, content extraction, text extraction than I was on, say, distributed systems or things, although I contributed to that. I contributed, you know, several patches to what eventually became Hadoop and and things like that. But my interest at the time, because it was all in text and and things like that, that's where Apache Tika came from. And so Tika is a very popular, widely used toolkit to analyze text, do content detection and analysis, detect the type of files and to do language detection and and things like that. We call it the digital babble fish. Mm-hmm. Basically, babble fish from the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. You put it to your ear, you could understand any language. Tika, the analogy is you put a file to it and it can understand everything about the file. And um, major uses of Tika, if you've heard of the Panama Paper scandal, uh, you know, this is a really easy way to explain it. A big data leak from you know of many different file types from this company that was managing offshore shell companies and accounts of the most famous people in the world and of, you know, dignitaries, the prime minister of Iceland, you know, things like this. That data was dumped on the internet and journalists worked on it for a year or, you know, maybe 18 months. And the way they analyzed that data was with Tika. It's there on the Wikipedia page. So basically Tika helped solve the Panama Papers, helped win the Pulitzer Prize in journalism. And I created that toolkit. So basically, um, you know, that's, 
that's, you know, you know, maybe some of my, maybe the pinnacle of, you know, what I've been doing with open source and Apache. And nowadays, you know, I'm not on the board. I was on a five-year member of the board at Apache, helped to bring a lot of projects there like Spark, you know, which is a de facto big data toolkit. Of course, Hadoop and all these other things got involved in search. But um, I'm not as active in Apache anymore. And I'm really setting my open source uh, attention today a lot on things like Google and TensorFlow. I was super excited recently to have pull requests accepted to TensorFlow to update and make some improvements and to their uh, example data sets and, and things like that and tutorials. So I'm doing a lot of work there today. All of the code I'm working um, on in open source is being published on GitHub um, in various places. You can, you can follow me there. I maintain the Python library for Tika, um, all of the Python bindings and things like that. Um, but yeah, that's where a lot of the, the work I, I'm still like, I learned so much from Apache. It was such an amazing experience, you know, but it's time, you know, and I'm pleased to see it's going on, you know, and that, you know, that it, they continue to elect new boards and they, you know, the projects, the more and more projects are coming there, but I'm, I'm not as active anymore. You know, they're, uh, just wanted to kind of put that out there. So that's, that's crazy. That's incredible what you do, Chris. Um, where do you get your motivation from? What, what keeps you going? Because you do so much stuff and work in different areas. It's incredible. You know, uh, for me, I just, I've never been the smartest person in the world. I'll tell people that, you know, I've, I've been around the smartest people in the world, but I myself haven't been, you know, the smartest person. I'm, I'm just, you know, a kid who grew up in a mobile home or a trailer in Los Angeles, you know, and that's, uh, you know, I'm an L I'm an LA guy. And, uh, for me, I just try and work harder than everyone else, you know, because for me, you know, like I said, I've never had anything given to me. I grew up very humbly, you know, I love my family and it's been amazing and whatever, but I just, I'm very driven. I'm very passionate, um, you know, to basically work harder than everybody else. And so many things interest me. You know, that's, that's the thing. It's, it's really hard sometimes. And early in my career, I was knocked for, for that, um, you know, for being, I guess, what you would call a generalist, you know. Um, but for me, you know, I see everybody, I think, that's doing amazing things nowadays and things like that. They're generalists, you know. And, and so that's, you know, I, I meet nowadays more and more people like that, you know, than maybe 20 years ago where they were like, you've got to specialize in something. And I think the world's changing and that's kind of part of it. Um, it's so, you know, multifaceted and, and, you know, you have to be multidisciplinary nowadays because a lot of the big hard problems are that way. Yep. So yeah, that's, that's part of it. I think it's just my, my humble beginnings and stuff. And, uh, again, you know, like it's just that, and I don't sleep. Yeah, that's, that's what I wanted to ask next. <laughs> Where does sleep fall into place? But it's incredibly inspiring. If you look up Chris in the internet, you will see what he's doing and this cv is just incredibly long i've never seen such a cv to be honest it's, it's very inspiring chris um where do you see yourself or your projects going in five to ten years what would you say what is your goal in the next five to ten years um i've got a couple very specifically and i've thought hard about this um first i want to help contribute to making smart rovers on mars and other planets mm -hmm. Uh, and to put intelligence on board. And we're actively working on that right now um, because the hardware is changing to the point of where, um, you know, NASA and other places, space, they've typically been risk averse and they still are. So we only put on spacecraft or on autonomous rovers, basically hardware that is about as powerful as an iPhone one processor, which isn't very powerful. It's called mm -hmm. the RAD 750. It's a old hardware chip. 
Um, but it's radiation hardened and therefore it can be put into space is, you know, resistant to cosmic radiation and things like that. And so it won't, you know, flip the bits when it gets out there or dies. So it's still being actively used today. Tomorrow, um, there's a, something called the high performance space flight computer, which is basically like a Qualcomm Snapdragon type of system. That's a GPU type of chip that is radiation hardened that we'll be deploying and putting into our rovers and our spacecraft. And we'll be able to do some of the cool stuff that we can do on desktops today with TensorFlow and machine learning um, on rovers. And so that completely changes the game. You take, say, Earth to Mars communication where you know the bandwidth, the light time is about eight minutes from sending a command to getting something back. Mm. So how can we increase autonomy? How can we increase our ability to do planning, You know, say, for Mars rovers? Right now, 200 images a day from where the rover is at, our, our Mars Curiosity 1 MSL that's there today, um, 200 images is what they use to plan where to go for the next day for surface operations. But tomorrow, what if I told you I could give you a million captions that were generated on the rover, image captions that gave you even more precise data density and, and information. It just wasn't with images. If you believe the text captions that were generated by the rover of what it told you is there, you could do a lot better planning, a lot more kind of, of where the rover's going to go, how we're going to do science and exploration. So that's that's one one I want to basically help create those, and you know we're working on research projects and stuff to do that today. And then my other big goal is to reduce the amount of labeled structured data that you need for machine learning. I'm really excited about learning with less labels. We're involved in a big DARPA program now, DARPA and NASA, working on that. And um, I'm exa- excited by generative networks, you know, GANs and things, and just you know what you can do with them, and not just deep faking. Although those are big cyber concerns, and and cyber is another interest that I have is protecting, protecting the nation, protecting all nations, you know, from bad actors and things. So I'm working a lot in that. But yeah, learning with less labels. How do we take the techniques that people are doing to do that today and really productionize them? So that's mm-hmm. kind of what I want to uh, you know work on. You know, big goals, but uh, very. Very inspiring again, Chris. It's it's amazing. I also read in the internet in 2014 there was an you gave an interview where you talked about this telescope sending like I think 700 gigaterabytes sorry in uh, per second. Is this still a project that's a work in progress or is it developed? What about that? So you're talking about the square kilometer array, yep. and that was a joint project between Australia and South Africa and a number of other nations. And basically, it was a goal of observing the universe, figuring out you know, where we came from like never before, from ground-based telescopes that were laid out over a square kilometer of land in both South Africa and Australia. And um, those telescopes, the early parts of that work, the low-frequency and mid-frequency uh, prototypes have been built, and actually the hardware is up, and they are operating today. And... Um, The challenge with those telescopes is that when they came online fully, which is happening this year, they will generate at their apex 700 terabits of data per second. And uh, you know, a decade ago when they started those projects, and still today even, what do you do with that amount of data? Obviously, you can't store it on disk. There aren't disks that could you know, have that capacity. And so it puts like data triage, data prioritization, things like you know, machine learning and you know, that can help us with add a big priority to optimize what the science data that we should be using because you're going to throw out a lot of it. What should we be archiving? What should we be looking at to you know, look at everything from radio transients to, again, the origin of life or to just explore the universe? And so that's an amazing project. The square kilometer rate still going. 
a lot of the early hardware exists and you know the last few things that they're commissioning will be built over the next year or two but it will be operating and is operating and is generating that amount of data and so yeah solutions for that it's in a big distributed network there are distributed archives around the world commercial industry came to south africa and this is what one of the reasons that they're upgrading their national infrastructure from 3G which is cell phone based internet to real you know actual wired internet you know it's it's been a sort of I would say national interest for South Africa, you know, to grow as sort of a, you know, a nation, you know, um, and to upgrade. And, and so, you, you know, you saw all these like MIT postdocs or you saw Yale, you know, people or just the, you know, all over the world, Oxford, wherever they were flocking to South Africa, not just because it's beautiful, you know, a table mountain and things like that, but because this is where like the next great electrical engineering, computer science infrastructure challenges were being solved over the last decade. You know, and so yeah, that's been very it's been very inspiring. The the first project scientist for that uh, effort, Joe Lazio, is actually our chief scientist for our deep space network at JPL. And so we were very involved, you know, especially during that time, you know, in it. And now, kind of, the project has its legs and going. And our scientists do work and will do work on those instruments and things like that. But yeah, it's it's certainly off to the races. Mm -hmm. Incredible. To wrap things up, so uh, if someone gets started. They'll probably, I would say they get your book, of course, Machine Learning and TensorFlow, which I'll link again in the description with a discount code. What is the next step if someone wants to go your path or says, hey, I'm super interested in machine learning. I want to maybe participate or apply at NASA, maybe at, at JPL. What, what is the next step? What would you recommend them as an expert? Having, um, so for me, having a couple of things, having some work that you can show off in a public GitHub repository, yeah you know, ideally a notebook that someone can click through and, you know, that kind of takes them, that doesn't just skip to the cool hyperparameter optimization or using Smack or Hyperopt or, you know, showing me that you can get, you know, 1% better than, you know, the, the state of the art, but that walks them through, here's some real data, here's how it was collected, curated, and labeled, you know, and that walks them through equally those elements of the process. And then second, pick a cool challenge, you know, Don't, don't focus on, you know, as much as I love MNIST, you know, I don't care about MNIST and, you know, do some multimodal interesting challenge, you know, and you don't have to solve it perfectly, but you do have to have some ideas for solving it, you know, and those are the challenges that we're going to, you know, tackle, I think. And if, if you can do those things, those are great next steps, whether you work for JPL or not. But uh, if you want to work for JPL and you're doing those things, hit me up. That's great advice, Chris. Thanks a ton. With that being said, I would say, uh, Chris, thanks so much for the podcast. It was really amazing. I learned a lot and probably the audience learned a lot as well in this short amount of time. And uh, if you want to find Chris, I will put his Twitter link and every other link down in the description. And you can get in touch with Chris if you want. Chris, it was a pleasure to have you on my podcast. Thank you so much. It's been great. And uh, check out The Engineering Mind on YouTube and, and the podcast too. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye-bye, Chris. Bye.